Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the June 25th, 2019 edition of Ask a Leader. Eyes are on the Supreme Court this entire week. No telling what will roll out while we broadcast this show. Today in the first segment, senior plastics campaigner David Pinsky is out there in front with Greenpeace's assessment and ranking of the U.S. supermarket's contribution to the plastic waste stream. Then in the second half, Jackie Mentor, co-founder of the Orange County Jewish Coalition for Refugees, tackles many things amidst the international commemorations of the World Refugee Day, amidst the unfolding of the man-made immigration disaster occurring along our border, around the country, on our collective watch. We'll be right back after a station break. Welcome back to the show. My first guest is David Pinsky, senior plastics campaigner at Greenpeace. They're rolling out their latest findings about what U.S. supermarkets contribute to the plastic waste stream. Hint, it's immense. David has run nationwide Greenpeace campaigns since joining the staff in 2009. He began work with the Oceans team in 2013. He's produced the annual Carting Away the Oceans, a report which ranks supermarkets on their seafood sustainability. Now on to plastics. Actually, the the graduate refrain that's so famous when they say that the future's in plastics, I'm, I just want that whole film to be remade with that scene saying, the future's in toxics. So in addition to driving change in the retailer sector, David's focused on markets-based approaches to shift the seafood industry to confront global crises like overfishing and biodiversity loss. As a member of Greenpeace's USA's first ever Diversity and Inclusion Council, David is involved with organizational and culture change advancing social justice. Prior to his career at Greenpeace, David already was organizing campaigns dealing with climate change on his college campuses. He completed his Bachelor of Science in Psychology from the University of Kentucky and his Master's of Arts in Psychology from the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. Toiling with a heady campaign that ranks our grocers on their neighborliness, David comes to us today from Oakland. Some of you may have already heard him recently on National Public Radio. Welcome to Ask a Leader on KUCI, David Pinsky. Thank you, Claudia. Thank you for the warm welcome. Well, Great to be here. Well, it's good to have you because you've been out all over the place get launching this whole campaign, this assessment, and so it's good to have you on. So on previous shows, I've talked with your colleagues about Greenpeace's approach toward tackling the plastic waste stream by focusing not so much on the what I call the straw-twirling, bar-hopping folks, but rather on the producers, the distributors, and the retailers. Your latest campaign which targets how supermarkets are performing. Now, it's in, in it, it ranks the 20 largest grocery retailers for the first time on their efforts to eliminate single-use plastic. So describe, David, the many ways in which, and let's just be graphic, uh, d- the many ways in which this plastic appears. So uh, plastics are pervasive. Uh, this is truly a global pollution crisis. Uh, they've been found in uh, microplastics, uh, which are plastics that are smaller than five millimeters, have been found in human stools. Plastics have been found in sea salt, in our air, in our drinking water. Even a study that was conducted uh, found uh, some uh, microplastics in the water at the EPA in Washington, D.C. Oh, and, so and one more, and the Pyrenees. There's some pristine areas in the Pyrenees, exactly. and they're show, there's, there is nowhere that they're not showing up. Right, and even, even uh, they've been found in the deepest parts of the ocean in the Mariana Trench. So they're everywhere. Um, you know, we've been told for the longest time that if we just recycle, 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 it's, it's going to help. Unfortunately, out of all the plastics ever created, only 9% have ever been recycled, and even more have been incinerated. And there's estimates here uh, in the U.S. that six times 
times the amount of plastics are incinerated than recycled. Uh, so we know that the only way to truly tackle this global pollution crisis is to turn off the tap, is to stop creating uh, so much of these plastics in the first place. So one thing, what I meant about appearing, where plastic appears, I would like for you to break down where in uh, there's all that packaging, all the trimming, all the uh, encasing. I mean, just can you enumerate all of the places in which the producers wrap plastic and put put sure. the plastic, add it to the product that we're there to consume? So they're, they're used throughout the life cycle of products. I mean, for the shipping, you think of the shrink wrap on pallets. Uh, then once they get into stores, you know, we see some just ridiculous, unnecessary packaging. So produce like bananas or cucumbers that already, they have skin. They don't need to be wrapped in plastic. They're wrapped in plastics or meat seafood grocery items, you know, plastic water bottles and sodas, to-go containers, to-go meals, utensils, and of course, then you get those lightweight uh, single-use plastic bags. Um, of course, in California, we have that ban, but you'll still see them show up some places, smaller operations. So it's hard to go into a grocery store without interacting with single-use plastics, and that's why we launched uh, Packaging Way to Planet, because we really wanted to the first time, you know, evaluate these supermarket chains on their efforts to eliminate single-use plastics. And as you alluded to earlier, it's not a pretty picture. In fact, all of the retailers receive failing scores in this first-ever evaluation. Well, and we're going to get to those details, those graphic details. So you've got the supermarkets news attention. And actually, they just lifted every word out of your press release and they put it in their article. But they're supermarkets watching. that they, they Talk about your assessments findings amongst the U.S. supermarkets. Who's the best so-called neighbor and how are they doing? So when you look at the top five, and these are all based in Orange County in Southern California, number one was Aldi. Uh, number two was Kroger, which operates Ralph's and Food for Less in the area. Uh, three was Albertsons Companies, and that operates Albertsons, Vaughn's, and Pavilions. Uh, coming in at fourth was Trader Joe's and fifth was Sprouts. And so each of these retailers, while they received a failing score, they are starting to make some steps in the right direction, whether that's being a bit more transparent. Uh, Kroger has a plastic bag ban. Of course, that won't be implemented until fully until 2025. And Aldi coming in at number one really stands out because it is one of the few uh, grocery retailers that we evaluated that has a public commitment with a specific target to reduce its plastic footprint. But get this, it's only 15% by 2025, we need to see that number move to 100%, and we need to see all of these retailers come out with public commitments to ultimately eliminate single-use plastics in their operations. And so you evaluated the retailers on their policies and their plastic reduction efforts, their innovation and initiatives and transparency. So you've ranked some of these already. So can you sort of get into some of those those very policies that you're talking about. I mean, you went through some of the, the, in the generalities, I'd like for you to break it down into more details for us to appreciate how carefully you're considering this. Sure. So those are the, yes, those are the four criteria. And so each of these companies received sub-scores for those criteria, and then that contributed to an overall score. Um, naturally, our, our focus is on reduction, so that, uh, you know, as being the main strategy that these retailers need to employ. So that was more heavily weighted uh, than the other criteria. And what we used was a detailed 20-question survey that was distributed to all of these companies. Some completed it, some didn't. We also used publicly available information. Uh, we have hundreds of supporters that actually went to these stores to evaluate their operations as well. And so we compiled all that data. And then in Packaging Away the Planet, which is our larger report featuring all of this information, it goes into uh, lots of detail. So if we were to look at Aldi, for example. So I mentioned Aldi okay. has that uh, public commitment uh, to reduce its plastic footprint by 15%. Uh, by next year, it has a commitment to implement reuse and refill delivery systems for its own brands. So you can... You know, now, we, we don't know the details yet, and that, that is one of the main things we need to see in terms of transparency from Aldi and others. The other thing that Aldi does that many retailers don't is, across its operations, it doesn't offer those lightweight plastic checkout bags. However, it does have this heavier, uh, more durable, and Aldi says it's a reusable plastic 
plastic bag. So that's something that Aldi is going to need to phase out. But I want to underscore that uh, you know across all these criteria, we're not just looking at the amount of plastics that are in these stores' operations, but really what are their plans, what is their comprehensive uh, strategy and approach to ultimately deal with this plastic pollution crisis, which they're contributing to. And I heard within the last week the perverse unintended outcome of the plastic single-use plastic bag ban in California is that consumers are buying sturdier bags for lining their garbage pans. Yeah, and so the, it's the, I, I think it's a good point about unintended consequences. Right. And one of the most important points that we're trying to make in this report and to these companies is that is you cannot simply switch from one throwaway material to another. So we understand that there's going to be applications, say, of moving from a plastic checkout bag to a, to a paper one, but that is going to put some pressure on the world's forests. So what we really need is to move again away from this throwaway society to one that is more focused on reuse and refill. And I, I love that you mentioned the graduate in that line. You know, that there used to be a time in this country not too long ago when we were much more conscious about how we were using materials. And I think we can get back to that. It, it is going to require that culture change, but ultimately we do need to see these companies taking leadership to help usher that change forward. Well, that Aldi is considering reuse and refill, is a, that just is a very compelling thing. It's, it's like it's so... There's such marginal pickup on that with consumers. So it's, it is a driver that the retailers set up those examples. And I know it's, it gets at their margins and that kind of a thing. I don't say this sort of gently, but I know where we can do, go to some very quaint locations and we can do the refill, but it's, it's not on anybody's consciousness for the most part. So for those of you who've just joined us, you're listening to Ask a Leader on Radio KUCI. My guest is David Pinsky, Senior Plastics Campaigner at Greenpeace, talking about their recent assessment of the extent to which 20 major U.S. supermarkets have addressed their plastic waste stream. So how do these supermarkets, how do their interactions with their distributors, how does that take place to deal with this excess of the plastic? So they have the most ability to influence their supply chains with their suppliers. Uh, and so those are the, whether it's for their private labels, their own brand products. So if we're talking about Aldi, for example, okay. we'll go into Aldi, right? And most of, it's over 90% of the products there are its store brand products. They're not national brand products, say Nestle or Procter & Gamble or Unilever. Um, but that's where they have a lot of influence, where they can, you know, if we look at Walmart as an example, Walmart right. is the world's largest retailer, the largest retailer in the United States. You know, it's a huge competitor with Amazon. It has the ability, you know, in Bentonville, where Walmart is based, suppliers will relocate their operations or have staff that are living in the area to be ready to come to Walmart's beckoning, uh, to come to its headquarters. So you bet that these companies have the power to, to make demands of their suppliers, and that's where we need to see more ambition. Uh, if Walmart, as an example, said to Nestle, Nestle packages 98% of its products in single-use packaging, not single-use plastics, but single-use packaging, and of course there's a lot of plastics in its products. But if Walmart were to say to Nestle, hey, Nestle, uh, we're turning the tide here, we have to get rid of single-use plastics in our stores and online, you know, we need you to uh, design some new systems to deliver the products that our customers need every day, you bet that Nestle would take action to respond. And we are starting to see some movement from consumer goods companies like Nestle and Unilever, but again, it's not anywhere near the scale um, and ambition of what's needed to tackle this growing plastic pollution crisis. So the, I mean, like, I'm trying to think of where all the pressure comes from, but I, so where, how does the pressure get exerted? Do consumers have any pressure the, that if there's, as Greenpeace continues to educate people about this plastic is going nowhere, but getting incinerated or drifting off in little particles in the water column, that do consumers have an opportunity or to apply leverage that the, that the leverage would be applied on from the supermarkets to the actual producers? I mean, where's this force going to happen? There's tremendous opportunity. And so, yeah, so if we look at the producers, right, so, so Nestle being a consumer goods company that's manufacturing plastics, well, it's using the plastics to manufacture its products, of course, then we have to look up the supply chain to players like Dow Chemical or ExxonMobil that are, um, you know, part of this uh, petrochemical industry that is planning right now to increase production of plastics 
actually quadruple it over the next couple of decades. Uh, so if we have the equivalent of one truckload full of plastic entering our oceans every minute now, you know, that's not a good indicator uh, for a, a clean planet and healthy food and water for the future. So our recommendation is that for folks, you are able to, as a customer at uh, these supermarket chains, you're able to exert your voice. You're able to let them know that this is uh, the plastic pollution crisis is of concern to you, and you want to see Aldi take greater leadership. You could go into your Ralphs and ask to speak to the manager uh, and say, hey, you know, I, I want to see it take action. What, what is Ralph's and what is its parent company, the Kroger company, doing? Um, and actually, this approach does work. Trader Joe's, based in Southern California and Monrovia, recently announced at the end of last year commitments to start to reduce unnecessary plastic packaging. Now, it's not a full commitment, right? It's right. not anywhere near what we need to say. And that has, you know, I mean, that's one of the glaring things when you walk into a Trader Joe's. You see so much stuff that is packaged in single-use plastic. But that large largely came out of a Greenpeace campaign that was based largely in Southern California, and over 100,000 people signed petitions, people were making phone calls, people went to the Trader Joe's headquarters, and were encouraging. It wasn't, hey, Trader Joe's, you know, this is terrible. I mean, of course, we mentioned that, but it was folks encouraging uh, the company to do the right thing. And so I I would say absolutely, Claudia, uh, listeners, you you have a, a tremendous voice, and I would recommend that folks Google Greenpeace shopping for plastic, and that's actually our interactive rankings uh, website that will distill all of this information from the bigger report that we release, right. um, and it tells you a little bit more about each of these companies and, of course, how you can take action. Well, David, I think we should be sufficiently totally creeped out about we're, we're nibbling around the edges with those plastic wraps when Dow Chemical and Mobile Oil want to ramp up to the tune of four times the existing production. What kind of campaign do we address that uptick of production? I mean, that's just massive. It is massive. And one of the things we talk about in the report, Packaging Away the Planet, is that intersection between uh, the petrochemical uh, industry and, and plastics production and, of course, the, the impacts, not just from manufacturing of these materials, but then throughout the life cycle. Right. Uh, so, you know, the, we're, we're seeing this uptick because of a glut of natural gas produced by fracking in this country, and plastics are largely created from materials uh, from fracking. So that is... You know, it's something that we need to deal with. We, in talking about it in the report, we are trying to educate folks about the full life cycle. But again, I would say people don't necessarily have as best of a way to engage directly with ExxonMobil. Of course, you go to the gas station, right? But you're always going to be going to a grocery store of some sort. And because these are such public-facing brands that do have to be accountable to their shareholders, they do have to be accountable to customers, if they hear from enough folks, uh, that is going to create change where those stores say, hey, we can't carry these products wrapped in single-use plastics anymore. And so that's going to trickle um, up the supply chain and will address uh, those plans for manufacturing to increase. Um, and I, I think it's, it's only a matter of time, honestly, we're seeing so much media attention around this. We're seeing legislation on the local and state level that's sweeping the country. Um, you know, uh, in, in countries around the world, we're seeing national legislation, Canada. Uh, just released uh, some plans for legislation by 2021 around single-use plastics. So I think the time is, you know, it's high time, and there will be movement away from single-use plastics. So uh, we're, we're pretty confident about our approach here in engaging grocery retailers as well as consumer goods companies to make that change. Well, I'm, I'm actually going to not ever let drop from my mind, though, about where that uptick of production of the plastic. That's It's just a daunting trend. And I certainly, I've talked to even the cashiers, I say something about that, you know, less than 20% are getting recycled or something. And there, there's a big education kind of a, 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 a steep slope to educate people. And you, you've seen it over the years all that you've been with Greenpeace. So, and do you do this every day yourself? Just every time you're in the retail setting? Do I engage with uh, the Everybody, staff? you must do that. 
Yeah, I yeah, and I, you know, you mentioned my my background as well in, in right? fisheries, and so I will I will go to the aisle where they have the canned meat and seafood and look at what tuna uh, a store is providing. And look, you know, again, this is this is something where plastics are pervasive throughout our lives. We're not saying that we need to eliminate all plastics because obviously there's applications in in areas like the healthcare sector, um, but to have these single-use plastics that are used for seconds or maybe minutes and then last lifetimes and are polluting our planet at a at just a global scale, unprecedented scale, it, it doesn't make sense. And it's, it's not going to be good for future generations at all. So, you know, that's where we really need to see a shift, uh, a dramatic shift in course. And again, where we, we think uh, with these grocery retailers, they have that opportunity. And by hearing from enough of us, that's going to create even further incentive for them to change. Well, I think, David, you've coined a new expression for consumers. Instead of single-use plastic, seconds-use plastic. Seconds-use plastic, indeed. Yeah. Well, so the the scores, we're back to um, where those arena here of the supermarkets, they scored above None of them scored 35, above 35, over 100. So that's this is going to be the baseline that Greenpeace will be using. So you've talked a little bit more. Are there more policies you want to bring up that you're trying to move in on to get, uh, I guess, a, there's an acculturation as much as there is a sort of a regulatory arena for paring this waste stream down? So when we look at particularly for companies. So we're part, Greenpeace is part of a global movement called Break Free from Plastic, which is now, it's grown well over a thousand organizations. It may be even above 2,000 at this point. I'm not sure the specific number, but it is massive. And so I think to your point, Claudia, about addressing the manufacturing side um, with the petrochemical industry, we absolutely have a coalition partners that are engaged in that, and Greenpeace is starting to look more at the intersections between climate and plastics. So stay tuned for work in, in that regard. And have you um, back. We'll, 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 yeah. Uh, yeah, that would be wonderful. And, and, and then in, in regard to what we're asking of companies and their policies, really, there's, there's three key steps. So they need to first and foremost be transparent with their plastic yes. footprints. How much of this stuff are, is actually in their operations? Uh, they need to establish and know, and honestly, some of them don't currently know. They need to have a sense of their overall plastic footprint so they can measure uh, tangible uh, reduction right. uh, based on reduction targets, right? Otherwise, 10 million pounds, yeah, maybe that means something. Probably not. So they need to be transparent with their plastic footprints with the public. Secondly, they need to prioritize reduction, so no, no longer invest only in recycling. That is a failed strategy alone. And lastly, you, you mentioned it earlier about innovation. They need to invest even a fraction of the billions of dollars they're making a year into alternative delivery systems to work with their suppliers uh, to create that change. And some are starting to do that, actually. The Kroger company, again, that owns and operates Ralph's and Food for Less in the area, has a pilot project with this uh, new initiative called Loop, which is uh, a reuse and refill system where you can receive products, say, from Procter & Gamble or, or Unilever at your doorstep in reusable tote bags. You can return those bags, and actually uh, you can also return uh, these items now to Kroger stores in certain parts of the country. But again, that's only a pilot project, right? We need to see this nation's second largest retailer. It needs to be a full-scale implementation uh, and make it as accessible to everyone. There's one more item I would add to the that list of three is, four would be to somehow codify covering the externalities. What's the actual cost of dealing with the, the waste product, the, the wasted plastic? Yeah, that absolutely. And, and that uh, externality is being put onto us, right? It's being right, put sure. especially onto uh, low-income communities and communities of color, uh, particularly those that are close to incineration sites. And this is unacceptable. And when you mentioned earlier, these, low, these profit margins, they have razor-thin profit margins in retail. But again, that is a false narrative. These companies cannot be expecting us to continue to pay for their plastic pollution and, and putting it on us. They need to absorb that cost, and they need to create this new system that is going to be healthier for the planet and healthier for communities for generations to come. So in addition to what you were saying consumers can do in you know, talking up, you know, educating and that kind of thing, so what's the best way to vote? Uh, I'm thinking we vote with our pocketbooks. I mean, it's, it's difficult to get alternatives to some of these products or to uh, 
a large share of them. But anything else that we haven't talked about that the consumer can do here? Well, I would say absolutely. If you have your reusable bags, bring those to the store, right? Do it, avoid products that are overpackaged in single-use plastics. But well, at we've the end got of the that day, one. Anything new, just something else that we haven't talked about. But that, that one, we've, right. we've got that in California for sure. Right, sure, we've, we've got that. So the larger point on that is, you know, individual actions, they make a difference, but at the end of the day, when we talk about the scale of this crisis and yep. the figures you and I have discussed, we absolutely need to shift it, put it back on these companies. So my encouragement is to check out Shopping for Plastic online, uh, learn a little bit more about these stores. The next time you are in the grocery store, ask to speak with the manager. If, uh, you know, like I, I get a little nervous before I have that conversation, if you'd rather opt to send a comment online or drop a, a little note in, in the comment box in the store, you bet that that will be counted as well. And if there are opportunities for legislation, um, you know, Berkeley just had some landmark legislation uh, dealing with throwaway materials, including single-use plastics. Go to that city council meeting, engage your elected officials and say, this is an issue that I care about, my family, my community, we care about this and we want to see action. So does a, the last question really rapidly here is, how, in, I mean, you've researched, assessed what these 20 major supermarkets are doing. How do you think, how important is it to them that they, that they win a public relations campaign with their addressing plastic? How, how much does that resonate with them as we close? Incredibly important. Before this, uh, this report came out, we saw public commitments from Aldi. We saw new commitments from Kroger, from Wegmans, which is based in, in New York, right. from Whole Foods. Yeah, I can't say, was it this report that led to those announcements? But uh, use Trader Joe's as an example. Trader Joe's responded, came out with public commitments, and is starting to work on this issue. And that came following the public and customer pressure. So they absolutely care. They are tracking this information, media, on social media, hopefully listening to this program right now. Well, it does make a difference. Well, thank you. That's all the time we've got. Thank you, Dave, for, for taking the time today. Thank you so much, Claudia. Great my, to be here. My guest was David Pinsky. He's a Greenpeace Plastics campaigner at there. And with that assessment he's talking about, with the 20 major U.S. supermarkets. We'll be right back in the next segment with Jackie Mender about her work with refugees amidst the international commemoration of World Refugee Day. Be right back. That's Bill Beach, Agua de Bebir, Agua with Plastico in it, for sure. Welcome back to the show. My second guest is a Jackie Mentor, an independent volunteer and activist helping refugees locally and abroad. She's volunteered in Greece in their refugee camps and detention centers where refugees from the Middle East and Africa are seeking asylum. Her work with Nurture Project International put her in the proverbial trenches with mothers and pregnant women who'd lost their homes and their families, who made the dangerous and difficult journey to end up in squalid and unsanitary conditions. That theme is running everywhere on our watch, folks. During subsequent trips to Athens and the Greek island of Chios, Jackie volunteered in refugee squats and camps, supplying humanitarian relief as a first responder to refugees arriving by boat. Back home for now in San Clemente, she continues to aid refugees in Europe in Orange County. Jackie, who recently founded the Orange County Jewish Coalition for Refugees, also serves as a volunteer with the TIA Foundation, Friends of Orange County Detainees, the Multi-Faith Alliance for Syrian Refugees, and HIAS. And I didn't print it out all the way. Highest. Highest, we just called them. Jackie worked in the Orange County Jewish community for 20 years, previously with the Jewish Federation and Family Services and American Jewish Committee, and currently with the Jewish Collaborative of Orange County. She is now an independent and volunteer activist, we've mentioned in the opening, and she completed her bachelor's degree in music from Brandeis University and her master's degree in cello performance from Manhattan School of Music. She joins me in studio. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Jackie Mentor. Claudia, thank you for the very warm welcome. 
Well, we welcome you here. It's origin story time, and I'd like for you to tell us how you got involved in refugee issues. So it started just after the peak of the refugee crisis in Europe in 2016. A million Syrian refugees showed up on the shores of Europe to claim asylum. I went in 2016, my first time. Um, I did not know what to expect. I went with zero expectations, and what I saw was shocking in the refugee camps. The camp I was working with, working in was described by NGO exer- experts who had visited many camps as the worst camp they'd ever seen. And what and I they'd s- seen a lot. And they'd seen that a lot. That was going to say a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what I saw were malnourished children. I saw mothers trying to give their children formula in unsanitary conditions with unsanitary water, people living in pop-up tents, sleeping on the floor in tents where they were being bitten by rats and snakes um, and spiders. Uh, I saw, I met refugees from Syria and Africa who had fled because they lost their homes, their livelihood, family members had been killed or family members had been disappeared. And they were arriving on the shores to Greece, trying to find safety and security. I hear nothing but trauma. Wall-to-wall, floor-to-ceiling trauma. A great amount of trauma. In fact, I witnessed and met many refugees who were being medicated for depression, but they weren't receiving psychosocial care. So they were really on their own. Um, And there was rampant rampant cutting self-cutting and self-abuse among the refugees. There were children trying to commit suicide. In the camp I worked at, Suda Camp on Chios, a study was done and it was determined that one in three refugees had tried to commit suicide. And that pretty much, not one in three refugees tried to commit suicide, one in three refugees had witnessed somebody trying to commit suicide in the camps. And As a volunteer, I was one of those who ended up picking up a refugee, carrying his brother at night, trying to walk him to the hospital, which was seven kilometers away, because there's only one ambulance on the island, and the police in the refugee camp refused to call the ambulance. Is Gios near uh, some of the the other, the Middle Eastern countries that people are are drifting from is that that's where it's positioned yeah it's, it's like re- the first it's really geography Chios is one of the islands c- closest to the coast of Turkey um, it's about it's just a stone's throw away from Turkey and so many of the middle pretty much all of the Middle Eastern refugees um, find their way to Turkey and use that as a launching point to get into the EU either by Chios. land yeah um, although those borders are very treacherous, even though crossing the sea is also very treacherous, but more have crossed the sea coming to the EU. So that we'll we'll go back to that because that thread, that trauma, the thread, and what that what kind of impacts that will persist that I think are not maybe sort of visible to all of us. I, I want to get back to that. So tell us a bit about the charter of the Orange County Jewish Coalition for Refugees and some of those with whom you collaborate. So the co- coalition launched 18 months ago, and we are a group of activists, independent volunteers, and 12 Jewish synagogues in Orange County. We came together because we wanted to take action with regard to the refugee crisis and make a difference specifically here at home where there are refugees in our own community and we have an opportunity to help them because the services provided to them are quite limited. Right. Especially now, um, since the new administration came into government, the refugee resettlement program of the United States has pretty much been eviscerated. So where we were seeing over 100,000 refugees being admitted through the refugee program to the states during Obama's last year, we are now seeing roughly 22,000 a year. And so amidst this immense need, if you could break down, there are several areas in which your charter is having you serve this. 
So Great. our charter is pretty simple. It's to welcome the stranger and protect the refugee. And we do that primarily in four different ways. We raise awareness, do educational events locally. We, we partner with nonprofits in Orange County who are providing direct services. We collaborate with other organizations in the interfaith community. And specifically, one of the, one of the major efforts that, that we undertook is to do political advocacy. And we have groups of volunteers who are meeting with our local members of Congress and advocating for pro-refugee legislation and to raise the refugee cap up to 75000 a year. Up to seventy-five. Yeah, which is still lower than where we were at our max. And that that just to re- compare that again, the max might have been up the max was one hundred ten thousand. Um, Obama's last year in office, and we're well below. We're so. well, well below that. Each year it gets lower and lower, and the president sets the cap for how many are allowed in each year. And the I, past two years, we haven't even met that cap. Right, I thought it was under thirty thousand or something. Twenty-two thousand. Twenty-two thousand. Okay. Okay. Well, in preparation for this interview, you mentioned that once someone starts on this path, and you've seen you've seen more than I could have ever imagined I'm going to see in my life. Uh, but you say once you start, you cannot take yourself away from this. No, and I find that um, with all the volunteers I've worked with, that once you start providing humanitarian aid, you're just drawn to it and you can't stop because you've seen these people suffering and you have to do something to help. For those of you who've just joined us, my guest here on Ask Leaders, Jackie Mentor, a volunteer and activist whose experience in aiding and refugees includes Greece and then here in the U.S. So, we're sort of alluding to that. Um, the settlement and the demographic patterns over the years here in Orange County. Earlier there, we were resettling a good many Afghanis, Iraqis, and Syrians. Mm-hmm. The number, as, as, we, as you said, has, has dropped off because of what the White House, the executive branch, is able to set. And, and this is uh, including families that are trying to unite it in one safe place. I mean, that the travel ban affects people that are trying to get together. And we know the importance of, of cohesion in a social unit, a family unit. So the, the impacts of this drop-off is... It, yeah, the impact... It's adding. It's adding to the pain and suffering of refugees. Um, when we saw the Muslim ban come into effect, we saw families who had been waiting years um, to get into the country who had been who had been told they were going to be admitted into the United States. Some of them had sold all of their belongings and had their plane tickets ready to go. And then they were told they could not go. We see families who are dispersed throughout the wall, throughout the world, and we don't know when they're going to be reunited. I like that, though, throughout the wall. That's sort of... (laughs) There's a a wall wall. right there, right there. Well, currently, it seems like we have a race to the bottom in terms of how refugees are being attended to from Europe to the U.S. Talk about the, that dynamic that affects how all of the countries respond because of how other res- countries respond to receiving yeah, refugees. It, it goes both ways. You know, I saw, like I mentioned, I saw great suffering among the refugees in Greece, and I was there providing first response when they would arrive on the boats from Turkey to Greece. And, you know, some of them would just kiss and hug me thinking they had finally found security and safety. And I knew what they were going to find. And I did not have the heart to tell them. Um, And what we're seeing, you know, what I saw there, I never imagined that I was going to see this in my own country and right at the border, which is only 100 miles away. I never imagined that we were going to see children put in cages and parents separated from their children. We don't even see that in Europe. There's just not that level of cruelty. But what is... Really? We really have hit the rock bottom of... We've hit rock bottom. And this is a policy of deterrence. And, you know, the, the... the conditions that refugees coming to Europe that they are living under is also a policy of deterrence, but it doesn't keep them from coming because of what they're fleeing. 
Right. It's so bad in the countries that they're coming from that they can't imagine it's going to be worse. So, Jackie, when we, we think about all this trauma, and I want to get to is, do you think that this questionable, this contemptible management of refugees, it's creating whole, not just one cohort, but several cohorts of, of lost, like lost generation. This trauma is going to be very persistent with the, the like the four-month-old Romanian child that was separated from his father, uh, who was deported, I guess, back to Romania. Mm-hmm. But, but I, I just I think we've got like a ticking time bomb that there's the personally being experienced by those traumatized but and there's a larger sort of time bomb of of a traumatized couple of generations from this displacement and this abuse. Yeah, we're seeing like I said we're seeing families who are separated, we're seeing children who are losing years of education. And the ramifications of that, we're going to have generations of children, especially, you know, in the EU. And we don't know what's going to happen to these children who've been separated from families here, but they're certainly not receiving an education. Um, The long-term effects of that are going to be drastic. Well, I mean, we can think of all the child developmental sorts of boning up on, you know, how to, how we're going to nurture and shape our own offspring. But the, I mean, there's all this developmental stuff, too. It's not just I mean, their, their whole making milestones with with bonding and uh, all learning and socializing and all that. It's all it's all terribly disrupted. It's it's disrupted. And we're all hearing the stories of what's happening in these child detention centers in the United States, children taking care of children, no schooling, not living in sanitary conditions. It's it's not having beds, sleeping on cold cement floors with the lights on 24-7. I mean, these are, these are considered torture. Not sleeping with the lights off is considered torture. Right. How can we be doing this? That's a good question, Jackie. So the point was made in terms of how, how the other is sort of codified in people's psyche here, that there was a big piece in last week's New York Times about the St. Cloud, Minnesota refugee settlement. It's, it was praised as the, the epicenter of anti-Muslim sentiment in the state. So the xenophobic echo chamber is heating up, and that's maybe that's one of the perverse factors toward this disconnect of what we how we treat our fellow humans yeah we're seeing rises in anti-semitism rises in anti-muslim xenophobia you know you mentioned the situation of the somalis in saint cloud a a year ago last november there was a shooting at a synagogue on shabbat on the sabbath in pennsylvania and why because that particular saturday morning they were honoring refugees and they were raising awareness about HIAS, the one Jewish refugee settlement agency in our country. And a crazy shooter came in. Because it's, the target was their refugee help. The target was this group was helping refugees. And he didn't want refugees in our country. That same day, we were holding special Shabbat services in Orange County at 12 synagogues. And we were certainly aware what had happened three hours before, and we had to have heightened security immediately. So let's get our listeners started on what they can be doing, because I I know there's an enormous amount of lack of impact we're feeling. uh, I don't want to say helplessness. That's just a feeble term for this. So where do you want to direct people? I mean, one one thing you're mentioning is like, get just get to the border, people. Just witness at the border. So what are some specific things you can have us do um, on all sides of the International Refugee Day? It's F Refugee Hour. You know, you're right. People do feel powerless. And I see an increase in in that sentiment. And people are going to start rising and protesting um, we're going to see on July 12th, Okay, yeah. Um, a national movement has just started called Light for Liberties. There are going to be protests and rallies outside detention centers throughout the county. We are talking about 
having a separate our own rally in Orange County. There is one in San Diego. So already please keep set. me keep me apprised so I can incorporate I that into a, a an announcement section of my uh, future radio shows so people know where to go. Like you said, witnessing is so important. I went last June and witnessed what was happening at our border and went to Tijuana to visit the shelters. And, and I saw and met in the men's shelter men who were being deported from the United States for violations and infractions as minor as driving infractions. They were separated from their families and probably won't be able to come out because they got, they got a ticket for driving poorly. This is, this is absurdity. Exactly. Um, and then we're also seeing, we're seeing a change in how ICE is handling refugees coming across our borders. They used to have at least some ounce of compassion, um, and they operated with a safe release program, which meant that they would help those asylum seekers connect with their sponsor or family member who is already in the United States prior to their release. What we're seeing now in the country and in San Diego, which is really impacted, is ICE, without informing anybody, is dropping these asylum seekers on the street, at train stations, at bus stations, and they have to find their own way. There are zero resources, well, zero knowledge of institutional stuff. It's, it's so important that we educate ourselves on this issue and what's happening in our country. San Diego has really stepped up to the plate with San Diego Rapid Response Network. Last October, they got a call from somebody at a bus station who noticed some people who were just wandering around and had a look in their eyes. They had nowhere to go. And it turned out they were asylum seekers who'd just been dropped at the station. And this person called the San Diego Rapid Response Network. And what has happened since then is they're serving about 300 asylum seekers a day giving them shelter, giving them food, giving them medical checkups. And there's an overflow each day. They, they can't even house all, the, all of the asylum seekers who are being dropped on the street. And our coalition is sending volunteers down there regularly. And to that point, there's, also, there's an Orange County Rapid Response Network. And I will have them on Ask a Leader on my July 16th show. It's the way that the schedule worked out. Terrific. So that they were trying to gear up with the threat of of a, a mass deportation movement, which is, it didn't, it's not exactly, wasn't launched, but the threat was out there. And I'm sure those kinds of, I wouldn't call it a gesture, but those kinds of utterances from the White House sort of re-traumatize everybody. And everybody thinks, okay, we're it's sort of, everybody's staying on high sense of alert. And it's, that's that's additional trauma. It just is coming from places we we people of privilege don't even have to worry about. We don't even think about it. No, you can't imagine living that way. No. And you know, these people in let's just talk about Santa Ana in Orange County. There are people who are undocumented or they may have received a deportation order. Um they're afraid to leave their houses. They're afraid if their kids, their children go to school. And they're at home or at work, they can be taken and they will, they will be separated from their children. We're seeing, and the, the Orange County Rapid Response Network is really good at this. They're, em, they're educating undocumented immigrants here in Orange County so that they have a plan in place should that happen to their family. If there's an ICE raid, teaching them to know their rights. And we, we really all need to know our rights and to need those know their rights and if we see an ice action taking place we need to try and record that try to witness it and report it so while we're talking about opportunities there's as you said the lights for liberty protest is on the 12th there's also going to be in the area if it's for it's for people to look for world refugee kinds of commemorations and there there's going to be one in in the area uh, to the extent that you can say people are able to to join there yeah our coalition is bringing together over 200 people in the community to learn more about the refugee crisis and in particular to give them a call to action people do feel powerless and really want to know what they can do. And there are many opportunities here in Orange County 
to make a difference. And like I said, we partner with other agencies. And I'd like to mention just a few of them that provide direct service. So yes. people who want to help should be should be seeking out ways to volunteer and get, and really help people in our community. You don't have to leave. And some of those organizations that are doing great work are Home for Refugees, World Relief and Garden Grove, the Haitian Bridge Alliance, and the OC Justice Fund, which is raising money to bond asylum seekers out of immigration detention, out of the jails. So these are just a few. And there's many more. And there are many more. Well, the events continue for the actual, the actual observance was on the 20th, mm-hmm. but it seems kind of, if it's, this trauma is ongoing, it's, it's, you know, it's not a day, no. it's, it's a condition, it's a commitment to make, to be a part of our men. When I think of this being on the collective watch, uh, and the sort of, uh, I, I think it's a bicker festival about what, whether or not this looks like the concentration camps that the what we're seeing it where people are being detained in our country it seems well i guess i'm i'd state the obvious about where the energy ought to be put instead of the semantic parlor discussion mm-hmm. but into into the throes and i mean i think we ought to honor this is traumatic for i mean you want to stay involved in this but there's you're you're taking a, a burden on in here but that burden you choose you're willing to take that burden on in the trauma you're getting from involving interjecting yourself and in whatever you have to give there's definitely trauma for first responders and self-care is so important and i think okay. there's a trauma amongst the whole nation amongst people who are seeing these reports daily constantly it you know and seeing what's happened happening to our country but like you said going back to international world refugee day and what we can do um, it's more than a day a refugee is a refugee every single day every hour well i really appreciate your taking the time jackie minner to be in the studio with me to talk about refugees in in every aspect of and how you've been involved Thank you so much for having me, Claudia. Thank you so much for being here today. That was Jackie Mentor, as I said, volunteer and activist whose experience in aiding refugees includes Greece and then in the U.S. This is my wrap. Next week, I'll have back on the show Rachel Bittacoffer with her latest forecast on so many races coming out July 1st, so she'll be here on July 2nd. And in the second half, Citizens Climate Lobby Mark Tabbitt and Virginia Bernard will talk about the heady times they've had on the Hill earlier this month and the political ground that's shifting there in Congress on climate policy. So uh, enjoy watching the debates this week and hope we all learn something. I really do want to learn something, something substantive. Talk with you next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Hey.